We're glad you're here. This morning, we are going to take uh, a few minutes to kind of set up our Mark series because today begins the first day of our studying of the book of Mark. We're going to start today in uh, chapter one, and then we're going to continue this study in the book of Mark throughout all, most of this school year, okay? So through the fall, winter, and then into the spring, probably April or May sometime in there. This is a nice uh, little slide here to kind of get us wrapped around this idea. We're going to study mostly in the order in which it's written, but there will be a few aberrations along the way, uh, primarily Advent. Uh, we're not going to be going in order through the book of Mark, but we'll still be studying the book of Mark. And then a few Sundays, we may kind of bounce back and forth, but primarily we'll be walking through this book in the way that it is written, in the order that it is written. Our hope with a longer series like this is to offer a more exhaustive study of a singular book. Now, we won't be a kind of verse by verse. That's typically not how we teach. Uh, but we are intending to take some significant time in this particular gospel, speaking both to some of the highlights, the passages that we know, but then also hopefully looking at some of maybe more, uh, some of the more overlooked aspects of the gospel of Mark. All right. Now, this fall is going to feel specifically a little bit different. Over the course of the following few months, while Russ is on sabbatical, we're going to have a number of different guest speakers coming in to help speak through and teach through the book of Mark, right? Uh, some of these people will be within our community. Some of these people are going to be from outside of our community. But we as a leadership, our elder team, felt like for our uh, staff to kind of stay focused on the pastoral and administrative duties of this community, uh, not shouldering the full burden of teaching in the way that Russ typically has, would be a good thing to equip our staff to kind of do the pastoral ministry of the church and then have some other folks come in uh, and speak to us as a community. I personally am pretty excited to hear from some of these other folks, and I think uh, a season of unique voices might be a really good season for us. So uh, we're incredibly excited about this. Now, here are a couple of things about Mark's gospel specifically that I think are important for us to keep in mind. First, none of what we will be studying are eyewitness accounts from a disciple, okay? Mark, the author, is recounting the preaching of Peter, who was an eyewitness and a disciple. But I think that's kind of an important distinction, something to know. Mark was not actually a disciple, was not an eyewitness of most of this stuff. What Mark is doing is recounting the preaching that he heard from Peter. Mark was Peter's attendant throughout his missionary journeys, and the early church fathers affirmed that Mark was conscious and accurate to report and account the gospel as communicated by Peter in those missionary journeys. All right? So that's the first thing that I think is kind of important to realize. Secondly, widely considered this to be the first gospel written and therefore is likely source material for the other gospels. Uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, but specifically kind of that Matthew and Luke, the synoptic gospels, right? Most agree that it was written somewhere between 50 to 60 AD during Peter's time in Rome, okay? And then the last kind of unique thing that I think helps set us up, unique to this gospel, the gospel of Mark, 
you have to understand that it's not written in this traditional narrative kind of continuation uh, of uh, this narrative of Jesus's life. Mark is more of this like fast-paced, interconnected vignettes of Jesus's ministry. And so you're here, and then it's like immediately we're on to this next story, and then immediately we're on to this next story, but it doesn't have the same feeling of a continual story or narrative going on. It's more little pictures of what was happening in Jesus's life and in the ministry. It's way less biographical in nature, and he spends really no time describing Jesus and or Jesus's background. These details did not, were not important to Mark. He did not necessarily deem them important for his audience. Mark's goal, or perhaps his kind of intended theme throughout the gospel, is to capture and pass along Jesus' universal call for discipleship. For Mark, this is best understood as relationship with Jesus, not ascending to a certain code of ethic or some sort of moral responsibility necessary, but rather following Jesus, being formed in fellowship with Jesus. And this is the very heart of Mark's gospel. This was his intended theme. Okay? So a couple of things, just to remember, uh, and not just for this morning, but remember throughout the fall, the winter, and the spring as we continue to study. We're going to start this morning in Mark 1, 1 through 8. If you've got a Bible, let's open right there. If you've got a phone, pull up that app, <clears throat> and I'll read this for us. It will also be on the screen if you want to look up there. But we're going to dive into our first passage this morning, and it says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance and a forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So right away, as you can see, Mark begins his gospel not with a birth narrative like the other ones, but by setting the stage for the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We're right off and running in Mark, okay? Now, this character that we first meet is John the Baptist, not to be confused with John, the author of the fourth gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is often how we talk about that John. These are two different Johns, all right? This is John the Baptist, John the baptizer is an important character for us to come on the scene because for several centuries, Israel had had no prophetic voice. For about 400 years, they had been waiting, waiting for what's next, waiting for deliverance, waiting for God to act. And then seemingly out of nowhere, this strange man shows up proclaiming to be the messenger as written in Isaiah. 
John was God's action once again happening in and around the people of Israel. The message of baptism, while known as an important aspect for Gentile conversion in this time, was something new for Jews to partake in. This call of repentance and the movement of baptism for all, again, kind of lays this foundation for the rest of the gospel to be built on what it means to be a disciple. What does a life formed in Christ actually look like? Now, we don't get to know John all that much in this gospel, so you have to study the other gospels to learn just a little bit more about them. I'll say a few things here. Luke speaks to his miraculous birth, being the son of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Matthew paints in the picture of John's unwavering theology and conviction by highlighting his confrontation, which is obviously continued throughout Jesus' ministry, but this confrontation with the religious leaders, exposing their hypocrisy and the undue burden that they were putting on others. And all three of the Gospels speak of John's horrific death at the hands of Herod. There's a couple of verses up here. If you want to read a bit more about John the Baptist, these would be passages to go to that kind of paint in this picture for us. Because once the picture is fully painted in, it's pretty easy to see how central a figure John the Baptizer is to our understanding of Jesus and his ministry. It provides important and needed context to the time, the place, and the worldview of Israel. Now, if you're anything like me, it's easy to read these first eight verses and just find yourself wanting to get to the Jesus parts of the gospel, right? Just get me to Jesus. Let me learn more about Jesus. But just passing it off as kind of historical information, I think, misses something important. Because I actually think we can find a few really practical application points for our discipleship from Mark's introduction to John the Baptist. I'm going to give you two this morning, all right? Here's the first one. Those who intend to be a voice for God should be noticeably different. Those who intend to be a voice for God should be noticeably different. I think it's interesting in the book of Mark, which is mo known as the most succinct gospel, really makes uh, not a lot of time or doesn't take a lot of time to paint in details and yet takes the time to say that John wears clothes made of camel's hair, a belt of leather, and eats locusts and honey. Very, very specific details to this individual. And really, this information is not centrally needed to understand anything about Jesus' ministry. But what it does do is it provides some very specific details that can create an image in our mind, drawing attention to just how different this person was, just how different John was than the rest. In many ways, he was a spectacle, kind of the weird guy on the outskirts of town, saying radical things, doing radical things. And because people were drawn to him, they wanted to witness what was going on. They wanted to be a part of what was going on. They wanted to taste this kind of strange and radical movement in that time. They had been longing for something, and he shows up. And because 
He was different, and people were drawn to him. People were changing. In 2000 to 2004, I served as a volunteer Young Life leader in a really, really small community outside of Bellingham, Washington. I was a student at Western, and uh, I got placed at this high school, and it was kind of like a a little farm community about 20 minutes away from uh, Bellingham or like that central area of Bellingham. The high school was only a couple of hundred students, but it had had a long tradition of Young Life primarily because of the faithful involvement of a couple named Mike and Sally. Mike and Sally were an elderly couple. They had an incredibly modest and classically wallpapered old person home. You would go in right away, it's like wallpaper all over the place and all of these old framed pictures, some of them even black and white pictures of their family all around their house. They had an acre or two of land, and they had one cow. I don't know actually why they had the cow, but they just always had a cow. Wasn't for milk, wasn't for meat, they just always had a cow. And every Monday, they would open their home to 30 to 50 students for Meridian High School Young Life Club. I would show up usually in the afternoon. Mike would be in the backyard, and he had this unbelievable comb over and it was here, and then it would flop over, and so it would just be hanging like out the side of his head here. He would always be outside on the oldest John Deere riding lawnmower I had ever seen, mowing the backyard to make sure the grass was just perfect for the kids. Sally would feed me dinner usually, and then she would take me downstairs, and she would show me the fully stocked fridge with all sorts of pops and brownies and the things that she made in anticipation of the kids showing up later that night. And when our group could no longer fit in the basement, Mike instructed me to contact the local Grange and have the Grange master send him the bill for our rental space. This is a total aside but I started to go down like one of those rabbit holes on Granges (laughs) when I was uh, looking up what the name of this person was. Washington State has more Grangers than any other state in the Union. Did you guys know that? Okay, but now you do. So how great is that? About 50,000 people in Washington State. Anyways, every year they would pull me aside sometime in around May and they would hand me a check to send a few kids to camp. One time I can remember showing up and mentioning that it was becoming difficult to speak over the kids at the Grange now because we had this large group and it's a bunch of high schoolers and it was just hard to like get their attention. And so I showed up that following week and already set up in the Grange was a new sound system that they had purchased and set up for us. And I always marveled at how this couple living in such modesty loved to be so extravagantly generous. They didn't have any kids there. Their kids were all grown. They had no kids in the high school anymore. Now, their kids did go through the high school, but they didn't really have any skin in the game other than they just wanted to be extravagantly generous for high school students in their community. Years later, now on Young Life staff, I come to find out that Mike was the president of a multi-state engineering company, primarily engineering with local oil uh, companies up in the Bellingham area and into Alaska. 
that he had hundreds of employees in the Pacific Northwest, and that he and Sally were in the upper sphere of Young Life's largest national donors. Now, here's why I tell this story, but it's because Mike and Sally lived very different than the world around. They inevitably had the means to live what many would consider an opulent lifestyle of travel and boats and vacation homes and newer tractors and so forth. But that was not the reality that they chose. They chose to live in remarkable modesty in order to give extravagantly. Now, in many ways, I think the world would see their chosen lifestyle as strange, but it was how they were different that drew me and so many others into their life. It wasn't a like, in your face, we're different, we're radicalized for Jesus. It wasn't a, this comes with strings attached. It was just a quiet difference. Something was different about them. And when you were around them, you felt peace you felt a hope. You could see their purpose. You could see their meaning. It was apparent, and it was incredibly appealing. John the Baptist was different. Now, maybe he was a bit eccentric, but I think he was different because of his conviction, because of his singular focus on preparing the way for Jesus. To truly be a disciple of Jesus requires our lives to be different. Different in how we talk, different in how we act, different in how we are hospitable and generous, different enough so that people notice. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among you, that the uh, among the pagans that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This call to live such good lives among pagans is to literally live beautifully, live virtuously, live a life that is different. Live in a way that people notice. Be different not simply to be different, but because Jesus has changed you, and following Jesus informs everything about how you live. I think one of the greatest temptations for us is just to blend in. If I could just blend in, if I could become indiscernible from the world around, then I could be an undercover agent for Jesus. But let me challenge you and say that this is an incredibly dangerous temptation. It's dangerous because the more you try to blend in, the more likely you become what you are blending into. Jesus doesn't call his disciples to a secret life of fellowship. He calls us to a life of obedience 
and a life of following in his ways. Stanley Howarass, Will Willimon say this, Christianity is more than a matter of a new understanding. Christianity is an invitation to be part of an alien world who make a difference because they see something and cannot otherwise be seen without Christ. Right living is more the challenge than right thinking. The challenge is not the intellectual one, but the political one. The creation of a new people who have aligned themselves with a seismic shift that has occurred in the world since Christ. To be an alien in this world means you are a citizen of the kingdom. It means your customs, your worldview, and the practices of that kingdom are shape, shaping your lives. Rather than country, rather than culture that you're from. It means that you should be noticeably different. Now, I'll close this point with this last little thing. I'm not advocating that we fly Christian flags in front of our houses or changing how we speak to capture as many Christian cliches as possible in a conversation. I'm not even saying that you have to give up dancing or movies or your passions or any of that kind of stuff to be seen as set apart. But what I am saying is be so radically kind, be so radically generous and steadfast, be so grounded and loving and hospitable and gentle that those around you can't help but recognize that something is different. And because they're drawn into your way of life. Here's the second thing that I think John helps us with. John helps us to understand the ongoing need for transformative humility. The ongoing need for transformative humility. Murray says this, humility is the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. When John speaks, he decenters himself and always points back to Jesus. We see this in Mark when he says, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is no doubt about John's deep, deep humility. And I think this is especially remarkable because he's the first prophetic voice in over 400 years for Israel. Can you imagine becoming the very thing your whole community had desired for hundreds of years? Fulfilling the thing that everyone had been waiting for? Might it be a little challenging not to allow that to get to your head? To puff up your chest a little bit? To think a little bit more of yourself than you should? And yet John, with the throngs of people coming to hear and to be baptized, stays the course with the right estimation of himself and his place within the kingdom. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when discussing his role with his disciples, John the baptizer utters what I believe is to be the most succinct and profound phrase of truth not said by anybody, or I'm sorry, not said by Jesus in the Gospels. Because he says this, 
He, Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. True humility transforms our being. And while we may convince ourselves that self-deprecation is the easiest path to this transformation, it is not. Humility can only be cultivated when we are able to see God for who God is and see ourselves for who we are. Cole says, John the Baptist clearly understands God's sovereignty, who Jesus is, and who he, John, was. Thus, he didn't have inflated views of himself. He wasn't out to build his self-esteem or to promote his own ministry or reputation. His aim was to exalt Jesus. He found great joy in his role of handing off the bride to the bridegroom. When we are able to see God as fully loving, as sovereign over creation, as eternally graceful, as desiring justice, and when we are able to see ourselves as beloved creatures, finite, sustained by grace, invited to participate, when we can see and live in these truths, then we will be transformed into their reality. And not only will we be able to help prepare the way, but like John, we will stay out of the way of God's movement as well. Opening with this scene, I think, is the perfect beginning to the series because John's task of preparing the way is still the very same core task of discipleship, creating space and making room in our lives and in the lives of others for the Spirit to do the Spirit's work. This is what we hope to more fully discuss and study throughout the book of Mark this year. And I want to leave you with this final little thought here, because I think it's important to understand that the outcomes of our discipleship are not nearly as significant as the intentions that we hold. We can easily get wrapped around the end result of our, of our discipleship. Did I do the right things? Am I currently doing enough? What happens if the things I'm doing don't actually make a difference? But these thoughts are not born from a place of humility. In fact, these are the types of thoughts that are centered around self. So rather than circle the drain of self-doubt, let us not worry about the outcomes and only control what we can, which is our intentions. And as we study, you will see the Gospel of Mark will speak to this idea of intentions time and time again. Jesus teaches far more about the internal transformation of the heart and the mind than he does the external activity of the disciple. This being something that John the Baptist seemed to inherently understand. He had clarity in his intentions to prepare the way, and out of that singular focus, a humble and powerful ministry was born. And so as we move together through this book, we want you to hold close the prayer that I am about to read. We've used it before, but it seems really fitting not only in Mark, but for our kind of current moment that we're in. So let me close with reading this prayer from Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. 
I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that I, if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may not know anything about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. New community, let us stand. Close with a benediction today. New community, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without faults and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace today.